Hey, I'm Sam Dover, and you're listening to City Road. Last episode, we listened to a panel from the Festival of Urbanism on endangered governance, looking at the realities facing planners and policymakers. If you missed it, definitely give that episode a listen. But today, we'll be finishing off our series from the festival with a panel titled Planning for Recovery. It's a fantastic panel of city leaders from around the world who help to contextualize some of the issues we've heard about over the last few episodes and apply them to a global perspective. The panel is chaired by Dr. Anne Forsyth, a professor of urban planning at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and the editor of the Journal of American Planning Association. We've also got Sam Asifar, the former director of Seattle's Executive Office of Planning and Community Development, Irene Figueroa Ortiz, the Senior Project Manager for the Public Space Unit of the New York City Department of Transportation. And lastly, we've got Glenn Grimshaw, who is currently the Senior Research Officer with the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C., where he is co-lead research, analysis and reporting on climate change, energy and infrastructure. I'll let Dr. Anne Forsyth take it away. It's a terrific panel, and I'm looking forward to hearing from them. I'll first ask Sam to share his views. Thanks, Anne, and thanks, Nicole, for organizing this and for inviting me. It was an important, important conversation. Before I start, I also would like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from the traditional lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, and that we honor with gratitude the land itself, that this beautiful land, but also the Duwamish tribe as well. Uh, as Anne mentioned, uh, Seattle was uh, the first city that uh, COVID was initially discovered within the US. Uh, what sets Seattle apart a bit, and from my experience, just in, in pandemic responses, the city has been pretty well organized prior to the pandemic for at least 15 years to close to 20 years around crisis response. It's had, it's had many crises over the last 20 years from riots to the Ebola uh, uh, epidemic to a number of other earthquake and other uh, crises. So what I'm gonna talk about briefly is just touch on the city structure in terms of crisis response and then very specifically the role of planning and urban planning in that response, uh, both in the immediate sense, but also uh, post um, pandemic in terms of recovery. And then the third part sort of lessons learned. So the city of Seattle for quite almost 20, 25 years has had a robust structure within the city around crisis response. So the city is led by a strong mayor, it's a mayor and city council system and the city, the mayor's cabinet, these are department heads, some about 40 plus uh, department heads, uh, are not only the mayor's cabinet, but they also double uh, as the mayor's emergency cabinet. In that role, we play a different role, and the emergency cabinet meets uh, on a normal uh, year, three times, uh, three to four times a year, just anticipating sort of the latest thinking about uh, prep, uh, preparation around crisis and pandemic or earthquake. And we go through a lot of mock um, setup, uh, especially annually on major disasters. So when COVID first was discovered uh, January 20 in the Seattle area, we immediately activated that emergency response. We knew this was going to be a pandemic. 
and we set the ball rolling around how we plan and think and respond. Uh, soon after that, February 29th, the first death was reported, and that then expedited the entire process for the city uh, to respond. So one of the first early uh, actions that we've taken is basically shutting down the city, working with the private sector, uh, big employers like Amazon, who employ about 55,000 people just in the core of downtown, as well as the city organization pretty much closed down. The impact of that was huge immediately and visible. City a day before COVID was uh, pretty much growing at the fastest rate in, in the US. Um, more cranes, more construction than any place in North America. That came to a dead stop the day uh, after pretty much February 29th. So during that time, uh, in addition to coordinating with uh, multiple departments, the emergency response is structured in a three-tiered process, tier one, tier two, tier three. So these are departments in the front lines would be in the tier one, uh, 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 police, fire, uh, infrastructure departments that have to be out there addressing uh, any number of issues uh, that uh, departments such as mine, the planning department, was more of a tier two and tier three, doing uh, providing background support. So while the first tier city um, organizations were out on the streets addressing homeless issues and medical uh, supplies and setting up um, uh, outside uh, facilities for uh, treatment in the immediate pandemic sense, the planning department's role was primarily focusing on data uh, support, GIS, geographic um, information systems, geospatial data to really identify where vulnerable communities are, uh, whether it's the homeless, senior citizens, so that um, uh, support and response is very much data informed. Uh, so the city uh, planning department has a robust data on where people live, uh, they have um, uh, robust data on the uh, space and land uh, as well, uh, uh, where we need to make significant quick changes in the physical environments to address the pandemic. The planning department uh, was providing that service in real time. Uh, so multiple data sources were used to not only identify where people are and where, where the support needs to go, that we also started mapping out um, locations of businesses that are being impacted immediately. Hundreds of restaurants closed. Uh, we needed to reach out to them in addition to the people that we need to respond to from a pandemic perspective. Uh, and that crisis soon turned into actually multiple crises. Um, the pandemic turned into a quick economic crisis, uh, hundreds of um, restaurants closing, uh, uh, job losses, but also soon after that, in March, April, we had a racial uh, reckoning in the city uh, uh, from the George Floyd death, and Seattle was the epicenter of that crisis and riots in which it turned out the Black Lives Matter movement was a big movement in the midst of the pandemic. When you're trying to get people to stay at home, uh, protect themselves, that became an issue. So all of us have to rethink and realign what we do in each of our departments. 
and then focus in this multiple crises. Uh, you're not trained in the planning department how to respond to a pandemic, but we had to um, learn quickly. But a lot of the work that the city has done over the last 20 years became uh, a roadmap in terms of how we responded to the immediate sense of, um, uh, of the pandemic. So that really built, built the robust sort of memory that then to this day, we're all working from home, uh, but we have sort of uh, made that a, a primary uh, uh, tool to really address a lot of the issues uh, and crises that we've been dealing with. Currently, while we're still really at a good place relative to other places in the city, 70% of the population is vaccinated. Um, a lot of people have responded to be uh, sensible around masking and, and vaccination. Uh, we haven't had as much impact as other, other cities, but a lot of the economic crisis were and the uh, uh, racial awake, uh, reckoning was a big issue that now is beginning to transform how we think about um, equity issues, both because of the impact of the pandemic that disproportionately impacted people of color, but also how space and land use plays a role, uh, not only in the immediate response, but more, uh, we'll discuss this further, what we think about the future of land use planning ought to be because of the lessons from, uh, from uh, the pandemic and the, the crisis. So I'll stop at that and uh, I will uh, look forward to conversations around sort of lessons learned as we move, uh, move forward. I too look forward to hearing more about lessons learned. But now we are going to move to Irene to hear about New York's incredibly interesting open streets and open restaurants programs. Hello, all. thank you. Um, and hello all from the native land of the Munsi Napi. Uh, I want to start by providing some context. So New York City's urban density um, presented unique challenges to implementing public health measures for reducing community transmissions. Uh, we were asked to physically distance, stay home, and only conduct communal activities in the outdoors. Uh, however, space in the city is limited. Public space is sparse. Uh, most New Yorkers don't have access to a private outdoor space. Uh, businesses often operate within a small footprint and rarely have open space available for operations. So during the early months of the pandemic, all of this resulted in people cooped up indoors, uh, parks at capacity, and restaurants that were struggling to stay afloat. At the same time, roadways were mostly empty because people weren't traveling long distances due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, so amid this crisis, New Yorkers saw an opportunity to find the extra space that they so desperately needed in our street network. And that's this is how I enter the picture. Uh, my agency owns and manages the streets um, here in the city, and we were asked by the mayor's office to oversee a massive intra-agency effort uh, to create and manage a series of pandemic response and recovery programs to allocate street space for recreational and business activities. So prior to 2020, my team, the Public Space Unit of the New York City DOT, uh, ran uh, multiple public space programs focused on pedestrianizing streets through physical and operational interventions uh, that range from 
closing blocks for a few hours to transforming slip lanes into pedestrian plaza. Each one of these projects will be implemented through uh, a public and private partnership where the DOT would put in place that the physical changes and then the community partner would oversee management of the space. So our team really helped the city hit the ground running uh, thanks to our technical expertise, but also to our expansive uh, portfolio of community relationships, which meant that we, uh, with a single email, we could reach and mobilize a network of people across the city with experience managing street closures and also public space. However, um, there were some unique challenges uh, that demanded uh, for us to rethink our methods. Uh, we didn't only have to put forward initiatives that could be quickly implemented, but they also had to be accessible to all neighborhoods in the city with minimal staff involvement and with minimal public investment. So within a period of three months, we developed and successfully launched the two central initiatives to our recovery as a city. Uh, the first one is uh, open streets, which allows residents and restaurant owners to temporarily close their block in space for uh, either recreation or for expanded restaurant operations. Uh, the process was and still is completely community driven. People would submit locations to join the program, DOT will review their requests uh, through an intra-agency review process. If the location is good to go, we would deliver barricades in signage and then the residents or the police department would be responsible for setting them up or removing them every day. Uh, during the active hours of the open street, cars can still park on the street or access the block. Um, this to allow for deliveries and eliminate the mass mobilization of park cars. Um, so the second is the open restaurants program, which enables restaurants to reclaim the sidewalk and or parking lane in front of their property for operations. Owners just have to uh, submit an online form. And then once they complete this, if their location meets our siting criteria, they can just set shop right after completing the application. As part of this process, we would email them citing and design guidelines, and they would build a structure and a setup based on them. The most government involvement in this process is that we uh, inspectors go and review the setups to make sure that they are in compliance. As a point of reference, over 83 miles of streets are open streets right now in New York City. More than 10,000 restaurants are currently operating on New York City streets as part of open restaurants. Uh, and then we reached these numbers quickly. It was so quickly. The, the scale of the impact is huge. Uh, building off those two programs, we eventually launched other street initiatives focused on supporting play, uh, regional activities, um, and also heat resiliency. So a year and a half of this experiment really have transformed uh, the streets in the city, not only physically and operationally, but also uh, it has really changed how New Yorkers relate to the public realm to the point that both programs have been permanently adopted after massive public advocacy. Um, now we're at the, in the process of refining them and understanding what they are uh, for like after, you know, life after the pandemic or post pandemic. Uh, and for us as a team, um, this has for, forced, forced us, and we're a team of six people, uh, to rethink our work in terms of its objectives and its, and its scale, uh, and also to evaluate how we can prepare our portfolio to advance issues, you know, of racial equity and ways to respond and address um, climate change. 
in addition to also institutionalizing uh, lessons learned through this past year, such as the need for coordinated uh, curve management here in, the, in New York City. Uh, I'm going to conclude my, you know, my, my portion by saying that the 9-11 terrorist attacks, um, they render, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the, the public realm in New York City was treated as a national security liability. You know, public space, public spaces were perceived as a potential instrument for, for violence. The streets were seen like that. Uh, 18 months of the COVID-19 pandemic have uh, rendered our public realm into a medium for community healing, uh, an asset in responding to uh, a public emergency. And I find this paradigm shift uh, promising because it signals the beginning uh, of a new cycle in urban planning focused on, on the collective rather than on the individual. So thank you, it's all to me. Thank you so much, Irene. And now uh, we're going to turn to Glenn for the perspective from Washington DC or um, the federal perspective perhaps. Great, thanks so much, Anne, for the introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, and just before I get started, I've just been the good bureaucrat, and I just want to say up front, um, you know, I'm talking on a personal capacity, and uh, none of my thoughts reflect those of the Embassy of Australia or the Australian government. Um, so, just as a quick recap as well of what happened in Washington DC, um, you know, like what happened in uh, Seattle and also New York, uh, Washington was you know very hard hit over the last 18 months. You know, we've had a series of restrictions that have come in force, uh, quite strong ones. They've been eased and back into force through the through the winter. And then uh, we opened up a bit with the vaccinations and now we're sort of dealing with the Delta variant. Um, so it's been, you know, we've been dealing with COVID measures for, you know, one form or another for 18 months. Um, there was some, you know, as, as mentioned by Sam, uh, Washington DC was also the site of uh, some Black Lives Matter protests following the killing of George Floyd on 25th of May, and these extended through the summer. Um, the region's also experienced a series of severe weather events um, that are being linked to climate change. Um, so, for example, just three, three weeks ago, the remnants of Hurricane Ida came through and, and actually killed 50 people in the northeast, including some areas just north of the city. And uh, we had the capital insurrection as well, which uh, you know had a, also had a quite a big impact on the city. So we, there was a lot going on. Um, this had uh, quite a significant impact, obviously, on the economy of the city. Um, unemployment peaked at around 11%. It's dropped uh, since then, but still, there's a lot of people who are unemployed or underemployed. Uh, the DC uh, downtown was essentially shut down for many months. And it's still recovering. And this is partly because a lot of the people who work in DC work for the federal government and a big chunk of the federal government still uh, working remotely. Uh, many small businesses continue to struggle um, or have closed down. This is just a picture of one of the examples. Uh, it's a very sort of popular place. It was a popular place in a very sort of affluent and popular part of the city and that, that um, didn't survive. And there's some lots of examples like that. Um, and then also from uh, the transportation perspective, which I want to talk a little bit more about too, uh, the metro passenger numbers fell from around 650,000 pre-pandemic to about 90,000 after the pandemic, which is just quite a massive drop. Um, and it's now back to about 180,000, which is still way short of where it was. So how did policymakers respond to all these challenges? Um, I won't go into too much detail of the, um, the, the open street scheme. The DC had a very similar 
uh, mechanism that Irene talked about, um, but here's just a picture of one of the examples of the innovations that um, uh, some restaurants and bars have taken up and building these structures. Um, and these were supported by the, the um, DC government from, you know, the sort of expedited planning processes and funding as well. Another, another big part of what happened in DC is that the government uh, fast tracks and capital works with a particular focus on uh, bike lanes and, and uh, providing bus lanes as well. Um, and to support that, the government has been uh, putting in place these uh, capital bike uh, stations that are accessible and, and can be used by anyone in the community. Um, and in addition to that, there's been a big influx of e-scooters throughout the city that people use, often on the bike lanes, um, and uh, they're actually growing in the DC government. So, uh, allowed up to 20,000 of these uh, up to 2023. And from a personal note, I just think they're great. I get around the city on those all the time. So um, maybe a bit of a different story in winter though. Um, so in terms of traditional public transportation, um, the Washington Metro and bus system actually shifted its um, goals and objectives, which was you know, completely interesting. So instead of being a service that was looking at uh, trying to prove the efficiency of commuters, it actually changed its uh, perspective and mission to help those low-income residents who needed to get to uh, essential work, which is just so important for the community. Um, the, the Metro is in the process of uh, putting in place uh, a reduction in well, some new fare structures to try and encourage people back. And like the DC government, the Metro sped up its capital works program to take advantage of the lower ridership. Um, and just one thing I want to note about that is um, they've actually commenced uh, a number of resiliency programs to deal with increased severe weather events, which seem to be uh, happening in the district as a result of climate change and in the Northeast generally, such as the hurricane I mentioned earlier. Uh, so as part of that, the Metro system is reinforcing um, underground tunnels to, to deal with a rising water table and flooding risk. And it's also upgrading a number of stations to accommodate severe storms. And just finally, um, and we can discuss this a bit more later, I imagine, but just uh, a few sort of thoughts that I had just from my perspective from being the New South Wales government and my perspective here. Um, so I just think like in DC, um, there'll have to be a bit of a rethink of some of the underlying assumptions and objectives of planning and policies, kind of something that Irene and Sam touched on as well. Obviously, they may be very different to the perspectives here, but um, from my experience, things haven't gone back to how they were and it looks like we're working in the new normal. Um, secondly, I just want to emphasize the importance of strategic planning and, it's, and essentially, or importantly, the, the, the importance of uh, planning for resiliency. Um, so this may involve uh, contingency plans, looking at scenarios and things like that to deal, deal with you know, uncertain events and things that are happening at the global level, such as future pandemics, the impacts of climate change and so forth. And thirdly, like uh, as discussed by Irina, um, the, uh, the importance of um, flexible and innovative uh, planning tools that may be able to quickly meet the moment. And obviously this needs to be balanced against good planning consultation processes, but uh, potentially could be built into the planning system through triggers and things like that. Anyway, that's my two cents worth and uh, looking forward to the discussion. Well, thank you very much, Glenn. I appreciate that. Well, I am going to take my prerogative as the moderator to start off with a question. And I just want to say it's been a big year um, in lots of places, but in the US. And it's not just one thing, as everyone's been pointing out. It's been COVID and dealing with the racial background of planning and, and sort of changing uh, for the better 
it's been climate change, it's been the economy. And it's actually been very intense and personal for a long time. So I actually just wondered, what has been the biggest sort of personal lesson you've had as a, as a planner from living through this sort of very tumultuous period? And maybe I want to start with Sam. Sure, that, that's a very good question. For me, a personal lesson was uh, the world is... Um, going to be very different from a planning perspective and city planning perspective. So from architecture, urban planning, we've always had um, kind of fundamental basics about what we plan for and why and how. You know, climate is important, you know, placemaking is important, livability, uh, those kind of fundamental issues were drove our land use policies. But the biggest awakening for me is how much more we have to double down in rethinking our land use policies, especially in the face of the significantly unexpected, well, maybe expected, you could expect some pandemics and maybe some disasters, but you always go back to the norm of what you used to do. We have to think completely differently as a city planner. Um, I've already made that shift you really have to have a much broader lens of how vulnerable um, a place and people are. And as best as prepared as we are, uh, we cannot continue to do the work as um, we used to. It has to be a new normal. And I'll just give very specific examples. We know more so now than the most vulnerable people of color, immigrants are the most impacted, not only by the pandemic, but also by um, uh, our old uh, land use decisions have actually contributed towards them being most impacted by pandemic. They happen to live in areas of most um, uh, least, least healthy places in Seattle, in the area of the South Duwamish, where most of our industrial land is, where most of the immigrant community communities live, they already have had um, 13 to 15 year less life expectancy compared to the rest of the city of Seattle. Well, when COVID hit, those are the people who are already significantly impacted because of air quality and asthma and other Area. So we have to really double down in terms of how we think our land use policies in addressing those equity issues. And then a whole host of other issues as well that we have to really rethink how we plan and how we make decisions in the short term and the long term as well. Thank you. Irene, from the New York perspective, what about you? Yeah, I think it was uh, really like the concept of resiliency became really central for us because, uh, you know, we had a storm recently where people died because like the streets got flooded and basements, like it entered basements and it, it killed people. Uh, so we have infrastructure in place that is obsolete. It's like you walk everywhere. It is, it's just, it's there. It's, it, we, we need to work on it. And I think that the, the shift's still not on, addressing um, like climate change, uh, just like all addressing racial inequities, environmental justice issues. I think like for definitely the, the thing that impacted me the most of this uh, over the past couple of months has been the fact that um, 
the fact that the pandemic didn't hit everyone evenly and that the people who were uh, already struggling uh, in the system because it, it, specifically in the United States, we had uh, you know racist policies in place for the longest time that kept a lot of people away from resources. That, and we still are doing that with like new people coming, uh, immigrants um, from certain places of the world. Um, like they continue to be at the bottom. And, and I think that's, we need to start taking action to address these things because it's just going to get worse if we don't do anything. Um, so for me, that's, I don't know if that's like a takeaway, but it definitely feels very urgent right now to start doing that. And with, that, with the work that we do with the public space unit, I had started to develop a portfolio focused on heat resiliency. Um, so looking at how we can retrofit our spaces in communities that have a, a high heat vulnerability index. That means that people uh, are vulnerable during heat waves. Um, so we can actually create cool spaces or places where people can go out, be outside, be surrounded by other people and cool down during heat waves. So um, that's one action I'm taking right now because it just became very uh, apparent to me that if we don't start doing something now, it's gonna, might be too late. Um, that's actually a very interesting connection between health and environment as well, heat and, and cooling. Glenn, uh, the last, lucky last. No, thanks, Anne, and thanks, Sam and Irene. Um, so I think, yeah, as I kind of mentioned, uh, the importance of resilience in, in, in planning, uh, sort of planning for the for the unknown and, and contingency planning and, um, you know, when when I used to hear, hear the term resilience, I never really quite grasped it, but um, definitely definitely have an understanding of it now. It really had to be front and centre. Um, and the second thing that really comes to mind is the resiliency of what I've seen in the US as well. Like people have just kind of got on and got back into into work. So it's sort of you know a positive message that um, of the human spirit as well. Um, and then sort of finally as well, it's sort of an issue that just sort of came to me was the um, the importance of potentially planning for mental health. Um, there's been many, many people who've been isolated and sort of dealing with sort of many issues, haven't been able to get out of their houses or haven't had community space to go to. And I think, I don't know how we would incorporate that into planning, but I think it's something we really need to start thinking about. Well, thank you very much. And these lead me very nicely into some of the questions we received from the audience beforehand. Here's the first one. It's from Alicia Otto from Hume City Council. And she talks about recovery needs to uh, move away from the business as usual approach. How do we convince federal and state governments to change their recovery investment models to look at open space, walking, cycling, and affordable housing investment, when for so long these have been neglected policy spaces. I think maybe we'll start with Glenn, who has a bit of more Australian understanding, and then that'll give Irene and Sam a little time to think. So how can you get the federal government to, and state government to change the way they think about recovery investment? Oh, thanks so much, Anne. Um, I would, won't touch the federal government because I currently work for them, but <laughs> I can draw on my experience in the uh, in the state government. Um, and I think um, so. Yeah, I think there's there's obviously an important. Uh, just going to my point, 
we might need to try and encourage the, the state government to rethink their assumptions about um, how we plan for things and how we uh, the policies that we make. Um, so, for example, what happened in um, in the city here? Like the streets were often, you know, city, you know, city streets are often there for the vehicles to get around. Um, but they've had to really rethink what that means here in the US in terms of you know and other places as well. This, you know, sharing the streets, you know, through either restaurants or bike paths and things like that. Um, and another sort of example is with the, the metro system here is that, you know, the shift from focused on efficiency to equity. So I think one thing that we can do is just really to try and encourage um, policymakers and planners to really think, rethink the underlying assumptions and, and um, models that they use. Um, you know, I, I probably uh, saying this as an economist, it's something with an, someone with an economics background, it's probably blasphemy, but I just think we really need to think bigger picture and that's what this moment has really um, made me do. Sam or Irene, do you want to tackle it or, or is it? Uh... Oh, good, both of you. I mean, I, I mean, Sam, go first. Go ahead, go ahead. So I, I think, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience working with the state uh, or the federal government, but I think that during emergencies, the argument should always be that, you know, during an emergency, you, redundancies in a system are actually always going to help you um, get through a situation because you never know which part, what part of the infrastructure is going to get hit or impacted. So you really do want to make sure that every piece, for example, I work in transportation, every piece of the system um, can hit the ground running and, you know, people can be mobilized and everything can be moved around um, regardless of what's failed. Uh, so I think that I, that's the way I would address, uh, I would try to sell it to the government uh, um, the federal and state government when it comes to investment and recovery and making sure that we have infrastructure that is able to respond to different situations. I mean, I am from uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, so my family, I don't know if in Australia, you know about this huge hurricane, uh, it called Maria, um, that totally wiped out this island in the Caribbean. And a lot of people died because they couldn't we only had car infrastructure to move around and people didn't have gas in their cars. So they couldn't move around to go um, to get food or to get to other places. Um, so just depending on one thing, on one mode of, of transportation, it's really a, li a liability during an emergency uh, and it really uh, makes the recovery slower. So that, those are my two cents. That's actually a very good answer, um, thinking about redundancy. Sam, what about you? Just quickly, I think that one of the lessons from Seattle has been right from the beginning, there was a very, very concerted effort for the city, the county, and the state to work very closely together in the response. And one of the outcome out of that, and, and in some ways, the planning department has a role in that, which was uh, the county and to a certain extent the state did not have enough data around, for example, race and, and social justice issues and the link between that and the impact of the pandemic. So our resources were shared. Those were uh, well, well accepted. And the uh, uh, relationship that was built through that uh, crisis uh, is, is going to be a lasting one. There is a concerted effort by the state, the city, and the county now that race and social justice lens are a critical component of all of our investments and policies 
uh, moving forward. So at least, I mean, this is not true everywhere in the U.S. As you know, they're you know, from state to state, depending on political affiliation, things are different. But we were going through this under a Republican administration that was not very uh, uh, open and receptive to the kinds of issues that Washington and Seattle are trying to deal with. But the state, the city, and the county really came together in all of these issues around affordable housing, around public spaces, the equity of public spaces as a critical public health issue. And because of that, we have actually made significant progress both in funding and policy uh, to address those issues as priorities because of that experience within the, within the pandemics. And now a receptive national government, a federal government is in place. Uh, and that is actually has helped significantly that we have done the background work to be able to uh, um, receive significant amount of federal funding as well as state funding with a well-aligned policy that's focused on recovery with a social and, and uh, equity lens as a primary driver for that. So that happened in Seattle, but I think for other areas, it really has to come from the grassroots and from the communities have to demand it. And the impact of this experience is such that we cannot go back to old ways of thinking about uh, investments. So uh, I would imagine in Australia and other places as well, there's similar uh, impacts um, where um, both national and local governments have to really come together uh, to address those issues. Otherwise, the reverse, the, the alternate is not pretty for everyone uh, for the next pandemic. But those are important points that you've um, all made about um, resilience, redundancy, and about coordination um, that I think are very transferable. There's a question from the audience uh, for Irene, uh, particularly about the New York City programs. So that from Mark Shepard, he wants to know what proportion of streets have been closed as the part of the Open Streets program? How many are expected to be permanent? And will there um, be removal of cars from areas because of this? And actually, if you could talk a little bit about how many of those 10,000 restaurants will be permanent too, that would be interesting. So how, how much as a percentage and how permanent is it? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I should have been prepared for that. Um, I think that it is not that, uh, I'm actually calculating that as we speak. Um, it is, oh, uh, let me see. I'm really it's only it's only like it's only like one like two percent of the streets have been closed through open restaurants uh, through open streets, um, but we have people have complained that we have lost over three million park no two million parking spaces um, no that's wrong two million dollars were lost in revenue from parking spaces in the in the city that were replaced by open restaurants so a lot of parkings were like the revenue from those parking spaces were lost like in a period of six months we lost two million dollars so um i don't know how many parking spaces those are actually um but sorry remind me of the question again other than so the, the idea is how much was uh were uh, how what percentage of the streets were open streets and then what's mm -hmm. the permanent um what's going to happen permanently with open streets and i would add open restaurants okay yes great questions 
So for open streets, um, I mean, there were challenges with that program because uh, we rely a lot of management on the ground. Um, in management on the ground always means that like communities that are have resources do better because they have people who have spare time to manage the street. Um, so those communities were the ones who ended up having uh, open streets that were super successful and were managed well, were used all the time. And they also had a massive mobilization of people who wanted them to be permanent. So what we're doing right now is we're selecting, I believe, like approximately five to eight streets right now, open streets. And we're talking about corridors, not two or three blocks, but it's around uh, one of them. The shortest one is of six blocks long and the longest one is 28 blocks of open street. It's a continuous open street, 20, no, 26 blocks. Um, so we're working with the community right now and with the uh, city officials on, um, um, like the city representatives on long-term plans for those locations where what we're doing is prioritizing positions and bikes. Um, the final result will be probably we're going to remove parking, like on-street parking from some locations. In other locations, we're going to be re relocating roadway for, for cycling and for like permanent public space. Uh, I think for most of them, we are maintaining local access of cars. We're, we're just changing the way cars move through that space. Um, so I think the idea is really uh, creating what, what, what probably is going to be a series of shared streets um, that have a flexible management. And that's really like a new thing is thinking about the street as something that is flexible. You're also always optimizing the street for, for the user that is using it the most at the time. So that's like what we're thinking is really uh, time of day management. Uh, so during certain times of the day, cars enter because it's when the delivery trucks come. And during others, there are barriers that will be put. So then like the kids could play outside. Um, so really that's what we're working on right now is on this like very large planning effort to try to understand how can we design these spaces to be public space, but also to continue to support the ground floor uses adjacent to them because they still have restaurants that need to get deliveries. There are schools where kids need to be dropped off. Um, so it, it's really shifting the whole way that we do planning because we're rethinking how we design intersections, not only physically, but also like looking at signals. Uh, so one thing we're doing in a lot of these locations is changing the signals. So um, a bike can ride from one, the beginning of the of the corridor, all the way down without ever stopping. So it's like a greenway. Uh, so we're timing the signal with the speed of a bike. So that way people can use them as like bike corridors. And it's like a very um, small change that you can make that really like in a way, support cycling and supports other type of like cyclists and pedestrians versus like, you know, drivers. Um, that's an example. If we open restaurants, uh, we're now redesigning the program because right now people can, like the restaurants use the street without, um, they don't pay anything. So that means that we are kind of, a friend of mine called me, uh, told me that I facilitated the biggest land grab in New York since like, I don't know, you know, since native times, um, uh, because like now the restaurants can operate on the street without basically paying anything. So now we're starting to think about what the model is, uh, because ultimately we want to, if people are privatizing the public space, we want to make sure that uh, we develop some model where we're giving back, we're capturing some of that value and putting it back in public space. So we're thinking about that. We're thinking about also the, the actual spaces on the road bed, because 
again, there wasn't a lot of control over the design. So we have all sort of magical things happening on the street that sometimes are like over time there and maybe not the safest. Uh, so we are also looking at that to make sure that um, that the you know the structures can age properly and that ultimately we are creating a public realm that is um, yeah that is not about uh, exclusion but inclusion uh, because a lot of them actually just close up this the the, the space um, because they have to close it up during winter to operate on the street which is like a whole other discussion because they were not open <laughs> anymore <laughs> uh, but yes that's those are the plans. Well, thank you very, very much. So we actually have another question that sort of leads on from that, and it's a question for Glenn. So uh, comparing the response in Australia and the US, would you say that US planners were able to be more agile in how they responded to the health pandemic? A big question because it's a big country. Yes, so no, thank you so much, Anne. And um, I can just only talk about, I guess, what happened here in DC from what I've observed and what I've read um, compared to what I've observed and read in, well, what I've read about and heard about in Sydney. So, um, but um, what I can say is that in the district, uh, they were really, really responsive. Um, so, uh, you know, they sort of really hit the ground running with a lot of the, the measures. So, for example, with the, um, the streetery system, uh, they put out the guidelines around June for that when, you know, uh, just about a few weeks after, um, you know, the, the stay-at-home orders were lifted. Um, and so, you know, so restaurants and, and bars and and, uh, and other businesses were sort of ready to go and they knew what that they had to do to uh, to meet the COVID requirements and to meet the, the permitting requirements for those spaces as well. Um, and they also implemented uh, expedited uh, permitting slash development approval processes on a temporary basis. Um, so I think the the number I saw was that uh, they could actually permit um, you know these these uh, changes. And Irena might have have a similar story within uh, three to, three to five days. And I think in some cases the businesses could actually set up shop before they even got their permit. So it was very very responsive. Um, and the uh, the capital program looks like from from what I've observed is it's really turned on a dime as well, and, and uh, it's been a really big shift in in the, um, the the investment in the city in terms of you know those roadways and uh, and the metro system as well. So yeah, so I think they've been very responsive. Um, so in New South Wales or, or Australia, I can't really comment because I haven't been on the ground to see what's been happening, and it's a very very different experience as well. Like here, we've been sort of in lockdown or semi-lockdown for at least 18 months. So, but administrators being been a bit more sort of open than completely closed and open. So it's hard to compare, but um, I think there's some good lessons there for, for Australia going forward. Thank you very much. We have another question um, that's actually quite interesting and I want to editorialize just a little bit. It's for um, perhaps uh, Sam might be a good one to start. Um, here in Australia, we have many, many small local governments, the question says. What benefits do you see in being able to drive change at the metro scale? Um, and they say, e.g. Seattle or New York. Now, I think it's, it's it should be said that neither Seattle nor New York have metro governments um, that, that only occurs in a couple of cities in the country, um, in Portland and... Um, Minneapolis, except for in the transportation realm where there are metropolitan governments everywhere. 
But obviously, Seattle managed to have some, sort even with a lot of local governments, it managed to have coordination happening. How did that happen? And what lessons might you have for another country with lots of small governments? So from the Seattle experience, there are two uh, parts to it in terms of why the coordination is successful. One is just what I mentioned earlier, the response from day one has been well, well coordinated and that built a lot of uh, uh, local uh, and, and state relationships among the people who participated. Nothing brings people together uh, better than you know crisis. Uh, and then you, you're all in it together and that really helps build uh, muscle memory if you uh, really uh, embrace it and, and work with it. The other for uh, Seattle is while there's no sort of metro uh, agency, uh, the city is structured in a way that uh, it has a state required comprehensive plan that we have to prepare every five to seven years. Uh, that comprehensive plan for the city, which my previous office was responsible in uh, producing, is very much interconnected from the local to the county to the state level in terms of the not only the coordination but the data and information in terms of what needs to be addressed in the next comprehensive plan. So from that perspective there is uh, both legally required coordination uh, from bottom up in terms of the, uh, the state from city county to state but also it relies on, and that is critical because uh, funding, especially for transportation, is dependent on the coordination and nexus between policies for the comprehensive plan. So that sort of during the pandemic, for example, we've already started thinking about the next update of the comprehensive plan is very robustly coordinated across all agencies to make sure that we address some of the uh, challenges that we've seen uh, through the pandemic. So one, just the experience from the pandemic response and crisis response have brought the, the, these agencies much closer together. And then two, sort of the legal structure for the city and state and county to coordinate on their comprehensive plans has um, pulled uh, them together. Uh, well, that you can't replicate that other places unless they have that structure. Uh, uh, but that's kind of the two key examples that I could give from, um, from, the, from the Seattle perspective. Thank you very much. Well, we're actually getting to the end of our session and I wanna use part of a question from one of the members of the audience, just as a final question for each of you to answer briefly. And it just is a question, is there a sense emerging yet of what the new normal or whatever that's going to be will be in the US? They want to know, you know, what will land use uh, patterns look like? Will people work in offices? What's going to happen? What's your crystal ball for um, what's going to happen with land use planning and the use of land um, transportation in the future? Sam, you've got your microphone on. You can take it first. Sure. I think I think there is a new normal that is emerging. In one area is, uh, you know, the lessons from and you know, working from home. Uh, it had both um, incredible advantages, but also disadvantages. So our downtowns have suffered significantly. I know we've talked a lot about restaurants and the reason restaurants are 
sort of highlighted is those are the ones that are the most impacted from day one when the cities closed. So when downtown uh, closed, uh, they were the most impacted. So we have to rethink how we use our downtown in a new era of where you're not gonna have 100% people working from home. There's kind of a hybrid, I think is going to be a lasting um, a pattern that you know you work three days from the office, two days from home, this three, two, two thing is more likely is what I think is going to happen. So that then you start thinking about then how do you plan for your downtown? Again, a day before COVID, we were running out of space in downtown for class A office buildings. And we were looking, you know, places in the industrial area to think about how we set the city up for the next five to 20 years. Well, now that's not the case. You may need actually only less a third of the space. The city itself has already taken advantage of that and reduced its footprint while it's increasing uh, uh, staff, uh, anticipating that a number of them will actually more or less would work at home at least maybe a third of the time. So I think that shift will take place. The other area from a land use perspective is I think what the pandemic showed is supply side uh, chain uh, of goods and services that are disruptive. So we're looking at our industrial land uh, from that lens as well. What kind of issues um, products should be locally produced so that you have resiliency when something like a pandemic comes in. And then the third part is what I mentioned earlier, sort of equity lens around land use planning. I think those three would have would, would have a lasting impact. Irene, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so I think that we're gonna go local. I think that we are going, one thing that happened here in New York, very similar to what Sam is describing is that people were working from home. So, um, so a lot of investment went to neighborhoods, to, uh, to small corridors, neighborhood, main streets that before were not getting a lot of you know money and resources. People were not really visiting them that much. Uh, that happened here. Um, and we started to see kind of that investment in uh, the outer boroughs, like in, in uh, New York, a lot of investment goes to Manhattan, to the district uh, center, to like Times Square, Midtown. Uh, those areas were totally deserted. So we started to see like the, the local, the, the, the smaller scale, the neighborhood scale really flourish. Um, and it was the first time that our public space uh, group actually started to do projects in neighborhood, in residential neighborhoods. It was the first time ever, and they were incredibly successful. Uh, so we actually started to shift our own thinking of the work to, to say, hey, there's an opportunity to get out of this district's uh, business districts to start thinking about, um, you know, the power of the local, I guess. And then we are seeing that actually the transportation uh, preferences are uh, also scaling down as well. We're seeing more biking and also when it comes to freight uh, and mobility, uh, we're also seeing um, efforts to start using cargo bikes and creating micro centers that are connected to neighborhoods uh, for distribution of goods through the city. So I think like everything's kind of scaling down uh, and I think that we're gonna, that trend may continue. I don't know, Sound, to me it sounds very uh, exciting to see where that goes. Great, and Glenn, the last word. Uh, thanks, Anne. Um, but one thing I was just thinking is that um, there's over the last 20 years, there's been a real shift to uh, city living and you know the buildup of urban areas and um, people wanting to live downtown or close to the city. 
Um, I've observed that that's kind of reversed a little bit. Like people kind of moved back to the suburbs um, and, uh, you know, suburb, suburban prices are really like, uh, you know, grown a lot quicker than what's happening downtown. So um, so that could be one of the potential shifts. And um, as Sam said, I think the working from home thing is really going to change the nature of downtown. You know, just the practicalities of having to go into the office and wear a mask five days a week, you know, it just really makes it so difficult to keep that up. Um, and when you sort of take that micro thing through to, you know, what that means for cities and, um, you know, I just can't see that we'll be back in the office five days a week for, for a long time. Hey everyone, Dallas Rogers here again, just dropping in to say thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. We have some really exciting projects coming at you next year. Stay tuned. We'll see you then.